Before this podcast gets started, I should tell you that there is rough language ahead. If you have children with you, you might want to skip this episode or at least save it until you are on your own. Canto 19 of Inferno. It's almost impossible to summarize it, <laughs> but I'm going to try. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we're slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy, and we have passed through all of Canto 19 in Inferno, the third evil pouch, the third malabolgia of the eighth circle of hell the circle of fraud and just think about where we've been we've been in proems that are condemnations of those who buy and sell things of the church we've been from there out to a confession by our pilgrim and our poet about breaking a church we've had trenchant and beautiful comments about the relationship of the pilgrim and the poet to the church. We've had descended into this evil pouch the first time down into one. We've come across, yes, indeed, popes. In fact, one pope who is awaiting at least two more to arrive and be damned for all eternity. Oh my gosh, we had an invective against papal corruption, and then we had this great embrace by Virgil and the climb back out. We're going to do our best in this episode to figure out some of the larger issues of Canto 19 of Inferno. But before we start, let's read the entire Canto one time, just to hear it sweep. Oh, Simon Marcus, oh, tortured disciples of his, you treat the things of God as fungible, you rapacious salesmen, bartering them for gold and silver, those very things that should be married to all that's good. Now let the trumpet sound for the likes of you, because the third pouch holds you in place. We'd already come to the subsequent trench, having climbed up the ridge to that part that hangs out over the middle of the ditch. Oh, highest wisdom, great is your craft in the heavens, on earth, and in the world of evil. What's more, how just are the lots your power ascribes. I see that on the abutments and along the bottom, the livid stones were full of holes, all of the same size and perfectly round. To me, they look no more roomy nor really any bigger than those that make up the baptistries of my beautiful San Giovanni, one of which, not so many years ago, I cracked open to save someone drowning inside it. Let this be my seal to disabuse everyone about that. Poking up out of the mouth of each hole were the feet and the thighs of a sinner while the rest of the guy remained inside. All of them had the soles of their feet on fire. That's what made them kick their knees so forcefully that they could have shredded twisted vines or ropes. Just as flames only move across the surface of something coated in oil, so these flames moved out from the toes to the heel of each foot. Master who is that one there, I ask, who twists himself and writhes around more than the others, who is sucked at by an even redder flame? And he to me, 
If you prefer, I'll cart you down that easier slope on the other side so that you can learn about his transgressions and his life. And I, for me, it's just perfect to do whatever pleases you. You are my Lord, and you know I won't depart from your will. You also know the things I don't even articulate. So we came to the fourth embankment, turned and went down on the left to the straightened bottom that was perforated with holes. My good master pulled me to his hip and didn't put me down until we came to the hole where the sinner made his lamentations with his legs. Oh, whoever you are, with the up part of you stuck down like a fence post, you poor soul, I began to say to him. It's your move, if you can make it. I stood there like a friar who hears the confession of a perfidious assassin, the sort who, after he's tied up, calls the priest back to slow up his coming death. And this one cried out, Are you already standing there? I mean, seriously, already standing right there, Boniface? Then the writing has lied to me by several years. Are you already so sated by the prophets for which you didn't even fear to seduce the beautiful lady by ignominy and then to rape her? I became just like someone who, after lots of mockery and without really understanding what's been said, just stands there and doesn't know what to say back. So Virgil said, tell him straight off. I'm not that one, not the one you believe I am. And I thus replied, as I'd been told to do. At that, the spirit's feet both started to kick around, then sighing, and in a voice laced with tears, he said, Well, then what do you want from me? If you want to know my name so bad that you clambered down that bank for it, you should know that I was once robed in that great mantle and truly was the son of the sheep bear. I was so greedy to promote my cubs that I lined my pockets just as I fell up this hole. Down under my head are crushed the others who before me made their living on simony, all squashed into the fissures in this rock. I get pushed down there when the one who comes who I believed you to be when I made my abrupt interrogation. But the time I have already cooked my feet and suspended upside down like this is already longer than he'll be planted with his reddened feet for after him will come from out of the west a shepherd who thinks he's a bamzalon he's even fouler and so fit to be a lid over him and me he will be the new jason like the one we read about in Maccabees, the one who the king made much of just like the king of france will make much out of this one I don't know whether i ventured too far into folly when i answered him with just this sort of verse hold up tell me this just how much treasure did our Lord at first require of St. Peter before he entrusted him with the keys? I'm certain he asked no more than follow me. Neither Peter nor any of the other apostles took gold or silver from Matthias when he was picked to fill the place lost by the guilty soul. So sit tight. You are well punished. Keep watch over the ill-gotten gains that made you so very brave up against Charles. And if I were not otherwise kept in check by my reverence for the great keys that you once held in the easy musical life up above. I'd use even 
rougher words than these because your avarice saddens the entire world by traipsing over the good and lifting up the bad. The evangelist had your sort of pastors in mind when he saw the one who sits on the waters and fucks around with the kings of the earth. The woman who was born with seven heads and who got her power from the ten horns as long as her virtue pleased her groom. You have made a god of silver and gold. What's the difference between you and any other idolater? Except he prays to just one god, whereas you pray to a hundred. Good grief, Constantine. You gave birth to a terrific evil, not because of your conversion, but because of your donation that lets you make the first super rich holy father. The whole time I sang these notes to him, whether he was chomped by anger or conscience, he kicked out both his feet as hard as he could. I truly believe my leader was pleased with me because he gave me a look with such contented lips when he heard the sound of the true words so expressed. Because of that, he wrapped both of his arms around me, and when he lifted me tight against his chest, he went back up the path he'd come down. He didn't wear out from holding me so close, so that he took me up to the summit of the arch that traverses from the fourth to the fifth dike. Here he carefully set down his burden so gently because of the steep, rough ridge that would have been a hard road even for goats. And there, another valley opened up before me. That's 19 in one giant gulp. It's really nice to hear it like that. You just can't quite get it in pieces. I know pieces are how we do this podcast. I get it. It's how we're working. But sometimes you just need to see the scope and the full reach of it. So there's several things that I want to talk about that are brought up by 19 as a whole. So let's take them one by one. First question. Is the third evil pouch full of popes? I know that seems funny, but after all, we have met a pope and he is expecting two more. Many of the commentators, believe it or not, say yes. They say that this entire evil pouch is just full of popes. If that's the case, then there are many many popes, because this is a big expanse. We're going all around the ring of hell. This is a giant, huge ring, and later in a few cantos ahead, we'll find out how big these rings are. Lots and lots of space, miles of territory around. How could there be that many popes in that many holes? I would say that many of the commentators who say, yes, this whole pouch is just popes who are being punished here, these are the people who want to see a secular Dante, and you know that I do not see a secular Dante. I see a Dante who is enraged that the church has become what it's become, and a Dante who eventually will believe his own righteousness is equal to the church's value. I don't think that this pouch is full of popes. I think it's full of simoniacs. So there are probably cardinals and bishops and archbishops and friars and mere priests, anybody who sells church offices or church beneficences. Remember, it starts out with sell the things that are good. So it could be people who sell 
marriage or even Eucharist, people who sell any church office or beneficence for money, they're all here. And I think that this is the whole of the popes. And the reason I think that is because we're told that on these souls, that is the souls of Nicholas III's feet, the flame is redder than anywhere else. And I think that we're supposed to know that redder is a particularly intense torment. And thus, this is the whole for the popes. I mean, Nicholas does say there are more down below me and there are more coming after me. The entire circle is for those uh, punished for simony. And these could be cardinals, archbishops, mere friars, mendicants, anyone. Let's say I'm a mendicant on the road and, you know, hey, I'll give you the Eucharist or I'll give you extreme unction if you give me a little coin. It could be for anybody who sells the church offices. They could be upside down in these pits. So, no, not popes for me. Just one hole with a bunch of popes and more on the way. How many popes are in hell since we brought up popes here? Well, I would tell you that there are four. There's Nicholas III, who's upside down here. He's expecting Boniface VIII. There's our second. And after Boniface, he says, another will come, the shepherd from the West. And as we talked about, that's Clement the fifth. Okay, there's three right here, upside down in this hole. Then way back in Canto 11, at the end of the Heretics, we came across the tomb, the flaming burning tomb, of Pope Anastasius um, and we talked about this. You can go back and look at that episode in that passage. It's probably a misdirection on Dante's part. It's not clear exactly who he's referring to. If it is a pope, it would be Pope Anastasius II, but it's even clear whether that's in fact who he's referring to there. It is a pope, without a doubt. The question is, did he get his identifications right? So there were four, Nicholas III, Boniface VIII, Clement V, and Pope Anastasius II, although with a muffled or garbled reference. Some people would say five because they see Celestine V up amongst the neutrals. If you remember, there is this figure who, quote unquote, made the great refusal. And many people see this as Celestine V, who basically surrendered the papacy to Boniface VIII. I have a very hard time seeing that figure as papal because by the time Dante is writing comedy, Celestine V has been canonized. And I just don't see Dante putting saints in hell, no matter what he thinks about church corruption. I much more see that as Pontius Pilate, who refused to take any blame or responsibility for the crucifixion of Christ. But that's a highly, highly debated stance. So there are at least four, maybe five so far in hell. But the bigger question is how many clerics? And the answer to that is countless. If you think about the fourth circle of the avaricious and the prodigal, that is full of clerics. They are all over the place. They are here in this pouch. The third pouch must be full of them here in the Malabolgia. There are perhaps some amongst the heretics, perhaps. And believe me, there are many, many more clerics ahead of us in Inferno. So the answer to how much of the clergy and the papal Curia and the papal bureaucracy and the church's hierarchy in hell, well, the answer to that is an absolutely countless number. And that should leave you a little breathless. It is indeed what makes many people say that Dante is actually a secular poet, not in my eyes. Again, I explained that already, but because there are just so many members of the church found down in hell, you can back up and say, my gosh, how can Dante 
actually believe this thing. I think he can. In fact, I think he holds it tighter than any of the rest of them do. Canto 19 practices a savage irony, one we haven't seen this pronounced so far in Inferno. We've seen lots of ironic bits. <laughs> Just go back to Francesca and the case for and against Francesca, and you will see irony running left and right in the poem. But this is a very savage irony from Virgil's embrace which is put up against the invectives against the corrupt popes from Dante's refusal he says to use rough words because of his admiration and reverence for the keys and yet then he goes on and uses extremely vulgar language in the Florentine as I've translated it to try to keep it just as vulgar so he says I don't want to use rough words then he does he talks about how the popes have gone whoring, uh, I used another word, of course, gone whoring around, and then just a few lines later talks about what Constantine the Great gave birth to through his donation, and that all goes back to the wedding imagery that opens the canto, so whoring and birthing and wedding, it's all tying together inside the canto. Or think about that part we talked about earlier about the whore of Babylon, and then how the passage ends, as I said in a previous episode, with she-goats, which is, again, feminizing because you're calling the popes the whore of Babylon, and at the end, there's this reference to she-goats. I just want to reiterate, I don't think that feminizing a person is an insult, obviously standing in 2021, but in a medieval context, of course, comparing the popes to a woman is extremely degrading given the rampant misogyny of the culture. Or think about how the baptism sequence works in the passage. A baptism is new life. It's the coming into a new life, and we end the passage with an apocalyptic vision of the woman with the horns and the heads, which is this vision of the end of the world. So we start with the new life and we end with the end of the world. Or think about the waters. Waters of baptism. You're baptized by the sprinkling or the dunking, but in this case, a little heavier sousing than modern days. But still, there's water involved in baptism, and we come out to the end, and there is the woman who sits upon the waters from this apocalyptic vision of St. John over and over again, so much tied together. Or think about the opening bit with Simon Magus. Simon Magus is a figure out of the New Testament book, The Acts of the Apostles. When we get to the big rant, what is there? There's a reference to Acts of the Apostles. How much did the disciples charge Matthias to take Judas's place? Acts of the Apostles wrapping up the canto itself. So much construction. There's the whole bit of the confession of I broke a church, but for good reason to save someone perhaps in a baptistry versus these guys who are breaking the church and saddening the entire world. That whole irony about both and all break the church, but for good reasons are bad. And you might even say that 19 is Dante the poet attempting to break the church too. That is, he can break the church for good reasons, even with this savage irony in this canto directed at papal corruption. It is an irony that is thicker than any we've yet seen in Inferno. In fact, it's a much more advanced writing strategy, which again leads me to this position that I take, which I realize is a supposition that 
the 19 is interpolated into the text. And part of why I take it is the reference to the coming of Clement V, which would not happen within the standard notions of when Inferno is written in the first decade of the 1300s. All of that leads me to believe that this is a much more mature writing style. This canto runs from deeply symbolic language, the shepherd from the West, the woman who sits with the the heads and the horns, all this deeply, unbelievably complicated symbolic language, uh, language to Simon Magus, all kinds of literary allusions, all kinds of historical allusions, and yet it also sinks to incredibly vulgar language. It runs the gamut up and down the linguistic registers, all the way from simple, relatively straightforward poetry, Virgil's embrace, up to incredibly complicated allegorical poetry. I think that too, like the savage irony, shows an extraordinarily mature writing style that you can play with language on an incredibly big level. Let's move on to the next point. One thing we haven't talked about is the direct address to Constantine at the end of the rant. We come through this rant, how much did Jesus require of Peter? How much did the disciples require of Matthias? Come all the way down to the apocalyptic imagery, and we end up at a direct address to Constantine. Good grief, Constantine, what evil you loosed upon the world. That direct address to Constantine indicates that this rant is moving out into a global and historical context. Now listen, we don't believe, surely, that Dante thinks that Constantine the Great is going to read comedy, do we? Even Dante's capacious self-assertion and capacious idea of his own value to redeeming humanity through his poem that will become increasingly present, even that cannot lead us to believe that Dante actually thinks that Constantine, somewhere up in the Empyrean, is going to read comedy. Nonetheless, the direct address to Constantine at the back of the rant indicates a global focus for the poem. I realize global doesn't mean Asia, India, Japan. Global in a Dantean context. Global in the world that he was writing in. The myopic vision of a kind of Mediterranean center of the world. But still, it indicates this, what do I want to say, this historical basis. And by reaching across the Byzantine divide to Constantine, by reaching across the East-West schism at the end of that rant, you're offering this kind of historical address that is moving up and up in self-righteousness from the pilgrim and the poet behind him. I think that moving out and ending it with Constantine is very important to its overall effect. If, for example, that whole rant had ended with, oh, Nicholas, good grief, Nicholas, what kind of nepotism you've released on the church, it would not have the same effect as this historical global reach that Constantine gives it. 
I think that that is part of its overall construction, moving from the intimate scene between Jesus and Peter of who do you say I am? You're the son of God. I will build my uh, church upon this rock. That kind of intimate conversation out to a giant historical stage in which Constantine is one of the actors on this big world stage. That, it strikes me, is yet more of the strange and beautiful construction of Canto 19. This brings us to the notion of the vertical and horizontal developments in Inferno. And I think that this is a really hard point to make. If I'm right, and if 19 is inserted here, then what we're dealing with is a poem that is not only in process horizontally, that is, as the poet's writing it, he's figuring out the poem he wants to write, but it is also in process vertically. In other words, pieces are being inserted into Inferno as it's going forward. I'm going to make a similar case later when we get to the false counselors, and I'm going to claim that some of that, I think, is a later insertion into the poem. I think that there is probably a way that Inferno is being revised, it's being changed. My hunch is that these kind of cantos are inserted as the poet figures out his overall and larger strategy for it. In fact, this kind of development is one of the things that makes Inferno so readable. It leaves Inferno much airspace. If it's both horizontally and vertically in process, then there is so much airspace inside of it. It's one of the reasons people back away from Paradiso and particularly the latter parts of Purgatorio. They back away from them because they don't have any airspace in them. The poet has figured out his mission. The pilgrim has figured out his mission. The tonality becomes incredibly unified, especially in Paradiso. And you don't have these kind of wild changes up and down registers in the language that goes on. And because of that, many people are very discontented with Paradiso. It looks too much like a concrete edifice. It looks too set and too formed and too perfected. To use the big literary word, which when we get to Paradiso, we will use endlessly, it looks overdetermined. There is a way in which this constant process is what makes Inferno so interesting to so many people and why so many people would have problems with this rant to end all rants inside of 19 because it smells a lot like the end of Purgatorio and a very lot like all of Paradiso. It has this complicated weaving of history and text and philosophy all bound up in an incredibly strident and, dare I say it, self-righteous language. I happen to love Paradiso, as you will find out. I think it is un believably brilliant, probably for me, the best part of the poem. But we gotta wait to get there. And it puts some people off for the self-righteousness expressed in this very passage that will become the dominant tenor of all of Paradiso. But I think you have to step away from the self-righteousness, even of this rant in 19, and look at the 
artistry. Look at the levels of meaning. Look at the levels of diction. Look at the levels of irony. Look at the way you can play with this poetically on and on ad infinitum, writing entire dissertations and books on 19. Look at all of that and understand that the thickness, the difficulty, the number of threads in the tapestry allows it to be as fantastic as it is. And here's my final point, and this is a larger point of 19, and I'm going to step away from 19 to make this point. Nicholas III is not as bad a pope as Dante makes him out to be. Yes, he did in fact place his family around. Yes, he did try to get his niece married and solidify control of Sicily. Yes, he did ask for Romagna in exchange for recognizing the Holy Roman Emperor. Yes, he did have dealings with the Eastern Church and even tried to breach the gap between the Western and Eastern bits of Christianity. But all of that says that he was an astute political player. And Dante, as I've told you, is his harshest critic here. And here's what I want to say as a way to step out of 19 and just look at it from afar. Apocalyptic thinking always distorts what can and should be seen. If you think that the world is in fact coming to an end because of papal corruption, that the end of this entire expanse of human history is somehow nearing you, I guarantee you your thinking is warped. Your ethics are warped. Your political thinking is warped. All we have to do, and I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but all we have to do is think about the people who think the world is ending now and their relationship to environmental laws. That is, there's no reason to pass any laws protecting the environment because the world is coming to an end. I will always argue that apocalyptic thinking ultimately warps ethical and rational thinking. And Dante cannot see the good that Nicholas might have done for the church, even the heroic good of trying to breach the East-West schism. Dante can't see it because in the end, Dante is believing, Dante is always believing that the world is about to end. Furthermore, Dante is the consummate idealist, and idealistic thinking and apocalyptic thinking go hand in hand. Both warp ethical, political, social, and even psychological thinking, such that you can no longer see clearly in front of you. And while I don't want to kick Dante too much because this is a gorgeous canto and gorgeously done, it is important to step back and say Dante is Nicholas's harshest critic. Why? Because Dante anticipates essentially the end of the world. Why? Because the world has gotten so corrupt, it must be ending, and thus we must be coming toward the last judgment. Think about all the apocalyptic thinking already that's gone on in Inferno, and that apocalyptic thinking will only get more intense in Purgatorio and then even more intense in Paradiso. Dante believes, as so many have, that the world is about to end, and that belief clouds his vision just as it does anyone's. Take away the notion that things are about to fall down a hole and then relook at the world. You'll see things in a clearer and, I dare say, 
more ambiguous light than you did before. All right, that's all we got to say about 19 so far. We could keep going. I wish we could keep going. I have so wished that I could build Reddit boards for this podcast so that we could just continue this discussion on infinitum because I think it's a really important discussion to have about 19. And I think it leads us out to all kinds of really important discussions we can have about even our own world and how our own world operates now. But since that's not the case, subscribe. Come back next time. We're going on to 20. And 20, while not as wildly gorgeous as 19 and wildly artistic as 19, 20 has got a whole host of problems because our poor Virgil, he's about to come in for the thrashing of a lifetime. You thought it was bad before the walls of this? Huh, that was nothing. Wait till you hear what happens to Virgil in 20. Subscribe to this podcast. Come back. We're walking on in Inferno. I can't wait to see you next time. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante. Mm-hmm.